This morning we will concentrate on two verses of that chapter we just read, on verse 4 and the first part of verse 8. Let's read that once again. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And then verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And then after the sermon, we will sing together, standing, if you're able, from hymn 39, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, what happens to someone if he is lazy? You have a job and you do as little as you can get away with. You frequently don't even show up for work and show little interest in your work. It's not likely that you will last at that job, is it? You certainly will not be considered to be an asset to the organization and you certainly won't get a promotion. Same thing is true when you're a student. What's going to happen to you, young people, when you're lazy about your schoolwork? You don't do your homework, you skip classes once in a while, you don't pay attention in class. It's likely that you'll flunk your courses, right? If you keep it up, you won't get your diploma. When you have a certain task to do, the Lord our God asks us to put, to put effort into it, else we fail, else we will not make a meaningful contribution. But now let's translate that into our membership of the church. And God has made us members of this church. If the Lord God were to do a job evaluation right now concerning you, what would he say? Would he commend you for the good job you are doing? Or would he call you a lazy Christian? You have to try to answer that for yourself, not for somebody else. Don't think of other people. As we listen to the sermon this morning, think about in what way you are making a contribution to the church and to the kingdom of God. How joyful are you that God has saved you? And what are you doing in regard to your task as a Christian in the world? Note well that Paul is commending the Thessalonians for their work. He gives them quite a positive job evaluation. He is very much impressed. He said not only did the people in Thessalonica notice your productive labor for the Lord, but people throughout the whole province of Macedonia, of which Thessalonica was the capital, and also the neighboring province of Achaia, of which Corinthians was the capital. All those people, they all heard about your faith. It's amazing. Even people beyond heard about it. The question this morning is, how did that come about and how does that apply to us? Could the same thing be said about you and me? At this point, you may already be feeling a little bit guilty. Would the Lord think that I'm not good enough? Perhaps that kind of scares you right now. Well, Paul says something else to them as well, which is also quite amazing. He says to the Thessalonians, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 
He's talking about their salvation. God is the one who has done it all. God has elected them, and he has done that from eternity. And so they do not have to be afraid. But now we have questions. We have difficulty with the doctrine of election. How do you reconcile what man does and with what God does? How does that work with regard to evangelism? For if God elects us, then what's our role and what's the use of evangelism? I will preach you about I will preach to you about the impact of the gospel on the Thessalonians. And then we will see three things. We will see that through the power of the gospel, God made them to be in the first place an exemplary people, in the second place an elected people, and in the third place a joyful people. The impact of the gospel on the Thessalonians. Through the power of the gospel, God made them to be first an exemplary people, secondly an elected people, and finally a joyful people. Paul says to the people of Thessalonia that their faith rang out from them in Macedonia and Achaia. The word that Paul uses is related to the English word echo. It therefore brings to mind a vivid picture. An echo refers to the application of your voice so that it can be heard over a very large distance. Same Greek word is also used to refer to the sound of a loud trumpet or of a thunderclap. The image is clear. The word of the Lord made quite an impact on the people at Thessalonica. It hit them like a bolt of lightning. And the Thessalonian believers were like sounding boards that amplified the sound. And the reverberations were heard long afterwards. All of Greece and beyond heard about what happened in Thessalonica. We can understand how that might have happened, for the city was a populous trading center and was connected to the world in a unique way by both land and sea. For it was a port city connected with all the harbors of the then known world. It was also located on the Ignatian Highway linking east and west. And so news could spread from this place in a very rapid way to regions far and wide. Indeed, that was also one of the reasons Paul chose to preach in this city. He looked for major centers from which the gospel could spread out. And that strategy certainly worked with regard to Thessalonica, for the gospel spread from there very quickly. And it is quite unexpected, really, that that did happen, for in the first place, Thessalonica was a very worldly city. It had a lot of things to offer. It offered a lifestyle where you could give full vent to your natural passions. It also offered many kinds of idols to worship. Thessalonica was especially noted for the trade guilds. Every artisan belonged to a guild, and every guild, which was an incorporated organization, possessed property in its own name, made contracts for great constructions, and wielded a wide influence. The guilds were closely connected with the local pagan gods. Pagan feasts with which immoral practices were associated were held, and therefore the nature of the guilds was such that they were opposed to Christianity. And so those Thessalonians who no longer wanted to worship those idols were in trouble with their guild. 
And therefore, in such a city, you did not so easily break with the customs and religion of the day. For consider what it all takes. It takes great courage and great conviction. In order to become a Christian, a radical change had to take place. As a Christian, you had to renounce your idol worship, all of it. For Christianity does not tolerate another God beside the only true God. To become a Christian did not involve just changing from one idol to another and then retain your old ways of doing things, pursuing the same kind of lifestyle you have always engaged in. No, to become a Christian meant to become a totally different person. It meant a radical change. Satan does not so easily let you do that. He has many tricks up his sleeve. One of his major weapons is the people you hang around with. All of a sudden, you change your thinking and your lifestyle, but then you have a lot of explaining to do and a lot of pressures to withstand. People do not let you change just like that. And also, bad habits are very hard to break. You have to be very much motivated. As we think about the work of evangelism, we should also realize that. You do not turn someone into a Christian overnight. There is a lot involved in becoming a Christian. You will have to suffer. And that is exactly what happened to those Thessalonians. Some of them lost their jobs and their livelihood. Others were turfed out of their houses. And in Acts 17, we read how hostile the people at the instigation of the Jews had become to Christianity. But you see, that is why Paul writes his letter to the Thessalonians. He wants to encourage them in their faith. He does not want them to give up. It is in that context that he tells them that they are the elect people of God. We come to the second point. A lot of people have difficulty with the concept of election. They don't understand it. They want to reason God's election out and try to look at it from man's perspective. Well, brothers and sisters, if you want to try to explain the doctrine of election in every detail, then you will lose your mind. At the same time, let me state that if you try to explain the doctrine of election away, you may lose your soul. In other words, you may not be able to understand everything fully, but don't for that reason ignore that wonderful doctrine. For the basis of it is easy enough to understand. God makes that clear enough. And it is very important for us to have that basic understanding of election, especially within the context of evangelism. Why did Paul tell those Thessalonians that they are chosen by God? Wouldn't that make them lazy Christians, thinking that they have already arrived? Well, it works actually the other way around. It encourages you. It reminds you of the wonderful and powerful God that you have. It spurs you on in the midst of hardship. Those Thessalonians have to know in the midst of their difficult circumstances that God will never go back on his word, that he will not turn his back on them, that nothing can undo his eternal decree of election. He tells his children about their election for their comfort. And that's also comforting for us, isn't it? 
you may know that even when you're slipping and falling, as we do at times, that God will not abandon you. And there may be times also in your lives when you are not so sure about what you are doing with regard to your faith. There may be times that your prayer life is lacking. There may be times when difficulties in your life are so overwhelming that you are not sure about anything anymore, including your relationship with the Lord God. And it is at times like that that you need encouragement. It is then that you may have, it is then that you have to know that God is still there, that his promises are sure, and that he will not turn his back on you. And that is why Paul wrote that to the Thessalonians. He did not want them to become discouraged in the midst of the trials and tribulations that they were suffering. He did not want them to throw in the towel. He wanted them to know the kind of God that they had. He wanted them to know that they have a God who is always in control. Satan cannot defeat him. And if you belong to him, he cannot defeat you either. And brothers and sisters, that's also the kind of message we must send out to those we are trying to evangelize. We have to remind them of the sovereignty of God. Reformed evangelism is unique. We believe that God does not leave it up to man whether or not there will be a people left on earth to serve him. No, we believe that God is always in control. God does not leave that up to the fickle and sinful mind of man. God does not sit around waiting for man to make up his mind whether or not he will serve him. No, God always makes sure that there is a people here on earth to glorify his name. Of ourselves we are incapable of coming to him. Scripture clearly teaches that. Paul says, for example, in Romans 8, verse 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And the Lord Jesus himself said in John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. And in Romans 9, verse 16, Paul says, It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Can you imagine if it were up to man to choose for God? It is only through God's mercy, through God's grace, that we can become children of God. And that is why Paul also started off his letter as he does the other letters with the greeting, grace and peace to you. Grace. And that is why we also begin each worship service with that greeting. And why do you think God chooses us? Why do you think he chose those Thessalonians? Because they are so good, because they are such good people? Because they practiced their faith as well as they did? No, that's not the reason that he chose them. That's not how God chooses his people. He does not choose us because we are somehow better than others. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and 28. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. The, the scriptures clearly teach that God has chosen his people also from eternity. Paul made that quite clear to the Ephesians where he says to them in chapter 1 verse 4 and 5. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. However, when you bring the message of salvation to those who do not know the gospel, then you do not begin with the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is hard enough for a believer to understand, let alone for someone who knows little or nothing about the Bible and about God's ways. Paul did not start off with the doctrine of election either. Paul began by speaking to the Thessalonians about the wonderful news of the gospel. And that everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus and who repents will be saved. And they will be saved because of the blood of the Son of God who came to earth to die for those who put their trust in him. And so he exhorted them to put their faith in the wonderful creator of heaven and earth. He told them about the wonderful works of God and how he loves his creation. And how he wants to have a people to honor and to glorify him. And he spoke to them about God's love for those who repent from their sins. And that through an act of faith, they too can be part of that people. Through faith, they can live eternity with the Almighty Creator. They must choose for that Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth. And that message has to go out. We don't go out from thinking about who might be elect and who might not. God knows. The secret things belong to him. He knows the hearts of people. He wants us to proclaim God's message. Just like Paul did. But then once those unbelievers come to faith. And then they should not be able to boast of their own efforts. For it is God that prepares the hearts of those people. He prepares their hearts to receive that message. Only he can give birth and only he can give rebirth. God does not want us to boast of anything ourselves as if we are God's people because of some inherent worth or ability in us that others do not have. He does not want anyone to be proud or arrogant. He wants you to be humble. And that's why a believer should not shy away from being in contact with all kinds of people either. With all kinds of sinners. No matter how deep their sin is. And no matter what economic circumstances they find themselves in. We must be kind and accepting. That's also how the Lord Jesus showed us the way. Look how he dined with sinners. And with the downtrodden of society. But he also dined with the rich and he also came to them with a message of salvation all kinds of people came to faith but then once such people do come to faith and they mature in their faith 
Only then will they begin to have some understanding of the doctrine of election. And then they will be able to understand that it is God who ultimately lifted them out of their miserable circumstances. That he is the one who prepared their hearts to receive the message of salvation. That it is all God's doing. Then they may know about God's election for their comfort and give glory to God's name. And then as they struggle with their faith, they can be sure that God has set them aside and chosen them. And then God will also confirm them in, his, in, his, in, his, in the election. And that's what he did to the Thessalonians. We come to the third point. All those wonderful things that the Thessalonians did in order to advance the gospel was in reality the fruit of God's election. It confirmed them in their chosen status. Therefore, Paul reminded them of the kinds of things that they did, such as turning away from the idols of the world and from their futile way of living to the living God, the fruit of their election. And he reminded them of the great impact that they made on all those around them and their families and their city and on their business contacts. Look at what a blessing you have become, Thessalonians. Don't be afraid to continue on that course. Don't go back to your former way of life. Remember what that was like and how frightened you were. How those words must have encouraged them. Before their conversion, they were a completely different people. They were full of fear. They believed in the fickle, fickle pagan gods who would punish them for having done something wrong. For they believed that the gods are the ones who caused the earthquakes that they are the ones who withhold rain or who bring about floods, and that the gods are responsible for crop failure or for success or for illness or death. And these people had been serving those fickle gods for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and they devised many elaborate rituals in order to plug in, so to speak, to the power of those gods. And those rituals included mutilating oneself and others and engaging in all kinds of horrible sexual practices. And you had better get all, this, all the rituals right or else the gods will be angry. If a calamity occurred in your life, that was because of the anger of the gods. And so the people were always full of fear. Those gods held them in their grip. Satan saw to that. For ultimately, he is the one they were worshiping. They were a people without hope. But then Paul came with a unique message about the only true God, the living one. It was totally opposite to the kinds of things that they had formerly believed. Paul spoke to them about the almighty creator of all things. About the only true God who made everything and who sustains and preserves it all. He told them about the love of the only true God for his creation. He told them how he wants man to turn from idols, to worship that God. For so he told them he is the way to life, to eternal life even. Paul told them not about a God of rules and regulations and rituals, but about a loving God. That living, that loving God is the true God who does not want sacrifice, he is the God who frees you from your fear. Oh yes, he wants to be served. There are rules, 
their regulations, but they do not serve in order to earn his favor. He is a God who forgives your imperfections and your shortcomings also in the way that you serve him. Else you cannot exist before his holy eyes. His love for man does not depend on how well you keep the rituals. And so don't be afraid. No, all he requires is a true faith, a humble heart, and an acknowledgement that he alone is in control of all things. He is a gracious God, a forgiving God, a wonderful God, the only true God. And if that is what you believe, then you will also show that in your words and in your deeds. And so you can imagine how liberating it was for them to turn from the old idols to the living God. A tremendous weight was lifted from off their shoulders. They were introduced to the only true God. They no longer had to fear that they had to get it all right. And so they no longer had to cringe at the anger of the gods. Through faith you are saved. If you truly believe, then you do not have to doubt. What a, new, what a wonderful newfound freedom they suddenly had. They were liberated. God's word spoken through Paul made them totally new creatures. And what a wonderful future awaited them. For the message touched not only their lives, no, it touched their total lives, also their eternal life. The living God would continue to want to regard them and to give them eternal bliss. He would love them forever and ever. He will give them eternal life without any pain or sorrow or fear. He will wipe away all their tears. And now you can well imagine that they could not help talking about all this. Their whole outlook had changed. Their lifestyle had changed. Their thinking had changed. Their way of doing had, their way, their way of doing things had changed. There was joy in their lives as there had never been before. And everyone with whom they came into contact could see and hear that there was something completely different about them now. It's no wonder that the thunderclap of their conversion was heard far and wide. One commentator said that we might call such phenomenon holy gossip. It is what people do when they're full of something they heard. They can't help but talk about it. Did you hear what happened to some of those people there in Thessalonica? And how they have changed? They're talking about the savior of the world. And these people are full of joy. I wonder what that's all about. Brothers and sisters, is that also the kinds of questions we evoke? Is that also the kind of message that is coming out from you and from me? Oh, I know, it's a different age. Basically, however, it is not different from before. They were idol worshippers. But so are the people of today. For what is an idol? An idol is anything that replaces God. It is... As the Catechism says, having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God. It is true our idols are more sophisticated, or so it would seem. People no longer worship funny man-made objects. But what does man trust in now? 
He puts his faith in money, in possessions. He worships these things. He cannot have enough of it all. And he puts his faith in power and influence, in politicians. And there are those who are obsessed with their work or with sport or with television. And they serve the gods, the god of drugs, including prescription drugs, or the god of alcohol, or the god of sex. Those are the gods of the world. And they hold you captive. We will have to admit that often these kinds of things hold us captive as well. Even though we know the truth and consider ourselves to be God's people, Satan lures us with all kinds of earthly pleasures. And that is why it's a good thing that during this time we are made to think about the work of evangelism. Some people would rather not do that. They think they have enough they think that we have enough problems in our own church. Let's deal with those problems first before we deal with evangelism. Well, brothers and sisters, it's a good thing that the early Christians didn't think that way. Those early churches had a lot of problems as well. Just read the letter to the Corinthians. And for that matter, all the letters that Paul writes. But that didn't stop them from speaking about a new hope that they have found through the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of evangelism is actually important for the health of the church. For what happens when you speak about your faith? That means that first of all you have to examine yourself. As you deal with your fellow worker and with everyone with whom you come into contact, you have to be right before the Lord God yourself. You have to think things through. And you have to think about your own behavior. And so there is resistance to evangelism because when you do, you have to open up, you have to open yourself up. You have to make yourself vulnerable. It's not that you are without sin. That's impossible. But you should not have a life where sin holds you captive. You have to examine yourself. Am I being held captive by pornography, by greed? by my earthly possessions? Why do I get up in the morning? Do I get up so that I can pay off my mortgage as fast as possible? Or do I get up in the morning so that I can praise God's name? I wonder what kind of gossip emanates from this church. What are the people saying about the members of the Emmanuel Canadian Reformed Church in Edmonton? It is is it clear to everyone with whom you come into contact that you have turned from the idols of this world and turned to the living God? What are they saying about me and about you? Let me ask you, can the people notice the great joy of your faith? Do they say, do they see that you are different from the rest? Do they see that you are not kept, that you are not held captive by the gods of this world? Can they notice from your conduct that you do not fear the loss of those earthly gods? Do they see a completely different person from the world? Is it so that you too cannot help but in one way or the other show your joy of your wonderful salvation? Is your heart full of that? For if it is, then your mouth will also flow over with it all. Oh sure, your words may be few. But it will show in the words that you speak. Is there a holy gossip coming out, of, out from this church to the rest of the community? 
Or is it the other way around? Are there bad reports about us? Think about it, brothers and sisters. We pride ourselves in being a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people in the community also know that about us. They know the claims that we make. And they also know the reputation that we have. And it is not always a good reputation. And that is because instead of sounding forth the truth of the gospel, we tend to blow our own horn. And that is what some people think evangelism is all about. They think that in order to be effective, you must talk about the fact that we as Canadian Reformed people have it all right. We have the right doctrine. And we are the only true church. But is that what we begin by talking about? No, such talk has no effect. It has no effect, especially if our lifestyles do not match our claims. That kind of talk is for later, and it is done with humility. Brothers and sisters, we may not be lazy Christians. We cannot just show up for church on a Sunday morning and afternoon and for the rest forget about who we are. We have to practice our faith every day of the week and in this way make impact on other people. Oh sure, as I said, the one can speak more easily than another. We all have our gifts. But we all have been given the gift of salvation through no merit of our own. And the joy of our salvation must show in our lives. It is the fruit of our election. And if you do not show that fruit, then you're a dead branch. Brothers and sisters, bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Be a living branch. Amen.